0: Good morning. The sermon passage for today is 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This can be found on page 953 in the blue Bibles in the chair in front of you. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness?
1: As we come to God's word this morning, I'm reminded of what the book of Hebrews tells us. In chapter four, verse 12, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so with that in mind, with the expectation that God will, in fact, accomplish his purpose through his living and active word, uh, let's look at what uh, Paul writes to the church in Corinth. In many ways, the the letter that Paul wrote to this church is shaped and organized around the problems and the misunderstandings and the immaturity that had warped and malformed this congregation. Their their walk and their fellowship with Christ was, was twisted and sick in some important ways, and Paul wrote this letter to address many of those problems. That makes Paul's gratitude to God for the church at the beginning of his letter all the more extraordinary. If you remember, he starts off not by blasting the church for all of their problems, not by complaining to God about them, but but he starts out by thanking God for all of the ways that he sees that this church has experienced God's grace. I think we could forgive Paul if he had decided to start off on a more negative note. After all, he had spent years in Corinth working tirelessly to see a congregation established there. And now it seems that their hearts were turning from him. they had begun to question his apostolic ministry. They criticized his methods. They were despising his unimpressive personal bearing. It seems that they had sent him a letter asking him some pointed questions and arguing with some of the things that Paul had taught them. Paul responded with a letter from his base of operations there in Ephesus, but now a report has come to him, he tells us in chapter 1, that the church was being torn apart by division, by jealousy, by quarreling. And some of the people were claiming to side with different apostles and church leaders. Uh, Last week we saw that Paul tells the church that such divisive instincts were fleshly, he says, and merely human. their their quarreling and their jealousy were the exact opposite of what you would expect from mature believers who are full of the Holy Spirit. And in our passage for this morning, we're gonna see him begin to address one of the key problems, one of the major issues that seems to be right at the heart of many of the struggles that he's gonna address throughout the letter. Now the technical term for this problem is over-realized eschatology. Okay, over-realized eschatology. That might sound intimidating, but eschatology is just a way of talking about our understanding of the end times. When we talk about eschatology, we're talking about the return of Christ, the final judgment, the ushering of God's people into eternal life with him in a world that's made new, a world free from sin and death and tears. And knowing how we ought to think and feel and live now, in light of what's gonna happen on that future day is an essential part of living wisely as a Christian. So the Bible expects that we're going to live our lives now in in an important way in light of what's gonna happen in the future when Jesus returns, when he judges the world, and when he makes all things new. So if I just step back and give you the big picture, The, the authors of the New Testament understand that when the Son of God took on human flesh, and when he gave up his life as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross, and when he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, and when he ascended into heaven, where he was seated at the right hand of God the Father, and when he poured out the Holy Spirit on his people, right when all of those things happened, it marked a new era in human history. So when all those things happened, when Jesus took on flesh, all the way up through the the pouring out of the Holy Spirit... It began what the New Testament refers to as the end times. Everything has been accomplished that needs to happen in order for God's plan of salvation to be brought to full fruition. There is now no period of history between us and the end of time. Right? So if you're an Israelite living in 500 BC, right, you, you know you're looking forward to the arrival of, of God's promised Messiah. But for us living in 2021, that's already happened. We're we're past that event. The only thing we're waiting for is for Jesus to return. Uh, And so we are living in the end times. Uh, We live in the same period of time that the Corinthian church was living in. And the important thing is that as we live our lives now, after the incarnation, The sacrificial death, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, as we live now with our eyes towards the return of Christ one day, we live uh, with certain aspects of our salvation that we've already sort of seen accomplished and other aspects of our salvation that won't be accomplished for some time. So there's an aspect of our salvation that's already here. But there's also a way the Bible talks about our salvation as not yet here. There's some things that followers of Christ already possess. So we've seen even in the letter to the Corinthians that Paul talks about them as being sanctified, as being made holy. Right? The Bible talks about us as being redeemed, adopted into God's family, raised with Christ. Those things are already genuinely true of us. But there's an important way in which those things are not yet fully true of us. And they won't be completely true until Jesus returns, until he brings us to be with him in a world made new. So the Bible can also speak of things like our sanctification and our redemption and our adoption and our resurrection as things that will be finally, fully, completely, perfectly, and permanently realized in the future when Jesus returns. There's an already aspect to our salvation and a not yet aspect to it. That's why the apostle Peter can write, but according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. right, this period of time is a time of, of experiencing important aspects of our salvation, but also a time of waiting, a time of hoping, a time of looking forward. That's why we sang earlier, that the the church awaits the consummation of peace forevermore. Because we have peace now, but there's an important way that we're still waiting. The Christian life is one of looking forward. And that's really important because it seems that a lot of the problems, a lot of the malformations that were taking place in Corinth came from confusion on that issue. Their eschatology, their understanding of the end times, was overrealized. That is to say, they thought they had all of those not-yet things now. They had it in their minds that true spirituality, that living in the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? That The Holy Spirit was undoubtedly in their midst, but they thought that that meant that they had been transported to a, a new realm of existence where they were completely beyond everything that was merely human, that they had now transcended the earthly and the things of flesh And listen, that will be true of them one day when Jesus makes all things new. But that's not our experience as Christians right now in this life. That's why Paul was poking at them at the passage we considered last week about just how unspiritual and merely human they were being with their conflicts and divisions. See, the Corinthians were thinking that they were already in possession of blessings that wouldn't be fully theirs until Jesus returns they were acting like they'd already realized many of the blessings that only come at the end. I think we see this same problem in our own time. And maybe it doesn't look exactly the same as it looked at the church in Corinth, but I think whenever Christians begin to think and feel as if this world is supposed to be heaven, right? when we begin to expect that our lives should be free from temptation, free from suffering, free from difficulty... Free from trouble, when we're excessively discouraged by our struggle with sin, when we condemn our brothers and sisters for their weakness and for their blind spots, when we expect the people of this world to love what we love and to conduct themselves in ways that are consistent with biblical truths, when we expect the governments of this world to look favorably on our faith, when we insist that this life should be marked by unbroken health and wealth and prosperity... Right, those are all signs that our, our eschatology is over-realized, that something's out of balance, that we're expecting things that aren't going to be true of us now. now. The marvelous news is that one day all of those things will be true, permanently so. But the difficult news is that that day isn't today, or at least it hasn't been so far. I think this is the idea that lies behind Paul's sarcastic statement there in verse 8. We read there, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. You see that word already repeated a few times. I think that's important. The problem was they were acting and living and believing and feeling like they already had some things that they weren't going to have until Jesus returns. The Bible does say that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will live in unimaginable abundance with every one of our material needs provided for. That we will have all we want. And all of our wants will be perfectly aligned with God's will. And we will, in that sense, be incredibly rich. But for now, in this world, in this life, that's simply not the case. We have access to all sorts of spiritual riches, Remember back in chapter one, Paul thanked God that the Corinthians had been made rich in speech and knowledge, right, referring to the gifts that had been given to them by the Holy Spirit. But our experience of life, even for us, right, and, and I'm confident that even the, the poorest person in our midst this morning would have a standard of material living far beyond what any Corinthian could have ever imagined. But even for us, our experience of this life is not having arrived, it's not one of, of having everything, of of having no concerns, no worries, no anxieties. Right? Our experience of this life is striving and groaning and concern. So Paul here is amazed that they're boasting about being rich. There in the middle of verse 8, Paul declares, without us, you have become kings. Uh, The words Paul uses there have the sense of, uh, you have begun to reign. But I think that's a clue as to what's going on. There was a a common expectation of the Jewish people in those times that they would share in God's reign over the world at the end of time. The idea wasn't so much that they would be kings, because God is the king, but that part of the joy of the eternal state would be in some way sharing in his rule over everything. And apparently the Corinthians thought that they were experiencing some of those end-time privileges now. They felt like in some ways they were entitled to act like they had spiritual authority in the here and now this is laughable we know from chapter 1 that this was not a group of people who were influential or wealthy or powerful in any kind of worldly or human sense right they they were hardly reigning but again it's not that they're completely wrong there is a sense in which God's people will join in his reign in the new heavens and new earth after all Jesus makes the promise to his 12 disciples in Luke 22 he says you are those who have stayed with me in my trials And I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In Revelation 22, we read about the inauguration of the new heavens and new earth. And we read there, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And they, speaking of the saints, will reign forever and ever. So there is a future reign to which God's people can look forward. But it's, it's not something that we experience fully in this world. Paul summarizes the problem there in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Uh, The word he uses there has a sense of being satisfied. Like when you go to a buffet and you eat all you can eat, and then you go back and get more, and then you come back, and that feeling you have when you're like, should I go get a brownie? And you're like, ah, it's not going to happen, right? That's what he's talking about here. The Corinthians were full. They, they, They weren't looking forward to anything. They'd had all they wanted, They weren't looking forward to some climactic experience of salvation that would come at the return of Christ. But they were were expecting that this life was everything. So significantly, Paul contrasts their sense of what their lives ought to be like with his experience of what life really was like. He reminds them there in verse 8, Look, if you started raining, you've done it without me. Because the way I'm living, it it can't be called reigning in any sort of important way. He says that without us, you've become kings, right? Apparently, Paul and the other apostles missed the memo. The Corinthians had figured out how to reign in this life because Paul's saying, I sure haven't. He even says, look, I, I wish you would. I wish it were true that you actually were reigning because that would mean the time had come. That would mean that Jesus had returned. Then I could be part of this rule as well. He says, would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. There in verse 9, we read this powerful image. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The image Paul uses here calls up a victory parade. A victorious Roman general would parade into his home city at the head of the procession. And behind him would be a procession of all of his soldiers. And they would be in descending order of rank. So the the generals at the front and then the the most important sort of next guy and all the way through. Behind the lowest ranking Roman soldier would come a train of captured opponents. The the leader of the enemy would be in front. And again, they would all be lined up down to the very lowest of the low. So when you got to the very end of the parade, the very end of the, the triumphant procession, you had the sort of lowest slave of a conquered enemy. These people were oftentimes taken into the arena and thrown to wild animals or, or torn to death for the amusement of crowds. Right, Paul says, let me, let me search the world for a metaphor of what my life is like. You are reigning. You are rich. You have all you want. I feel like the guy at the end of the Roman procession, no, not the Roman soldier, but the guy after all of the other enemy combatants have been sort of paraded through. You know the guy who gets thrown into the arena to be torn apart by the lion? That's what my experience of being an apostle is like. And if you read about Paul's ministry, you'll know what he's talking about. His experience of following Christ had meant being beaten, imprisoned, rejected, mocked, despised. He goes on to make the contrast explicit there in verses 10 to 13. Speaking about his fellow apostles and leaders, he says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. You can see how different Paul's posture is from that of the Corinthians. They boasted. They, they thought that being in Christ made them so wise and strong and honorable. Paul says, well, it's weird because the apostles over here are generally being treated like we are weak and foolish and dishonored. He says, I've been homeless, battered, and abused. I, I'm like the scum of the earth. Right The refuse of all things, right? they're, they're really, there's nothing lower than that. And you can see the disconnect that Paul's trying to draw out here. You have Jesus, the glorious Son of God, who took on flesh and lived a life of humiliation and suffering, who walked a path that led to a cross. And you have his apostles, his chosen servants, who lived lives of suffering and humiliation. And the Corinthians are living like they're rich. They're living the dream. They're reigning. They have all they want. You see the nature of the problem. The Corinthians were living as if they were supposed to already be experiencing the full measure of end-time blessings. They were already living like they'd arrived Like there was nothing to wait for. So why does that matter? What difference does it make if we get our eschatology wrong? If we begin to think that we should experience end time blessings now? Well, I think if we look at what Paul says in this chapter, I think we see that a proper understanding of the end times will create in us two things. First, Patience in judgment, and second, Christ like humility. And so, with the time we have remaining, let's look at those two ideas that, that we ought to have patience in judgment and Christ like humility. So, first, patience in judgment. Look at there in verses two to five. Paul writes this He says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There in verse two, Paul says that stewards, there he's referring to himself and the other apostles, will See that in a couple minutes when we look at verse 1, Lord willing. He says, stewards are required to be found faithful. And this leads him into a meditation on the theme of judgment, something that comes up repeatedly in this letter. Paul's already mentioned back in chapter 2, verse 15, that the person who has God's spirit is able to judge. That, That word means examine all things, but can't be judged or examined by anyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And it seems that the Corinthians were busy judging Paul. They were busy examining his ministry. They were treating him like he was on trial. And he was, they were treating him like, like they were the jury that he had to prove himself to. But this is another example of their over-realized eschatology. They were acting like now is the time to judge all things. They were acting like you can evaluate things based on how they appear in this moment. Paul's saying, no, 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 don't pass judgment before the time. And he he defines that as when Jesus returns. There's a a future evaluation coming, Paul says. Now's not the time to judge. You can't judge on how things appear right now. Paul says there's going to be a future day when everything's going to be clear, and that'll be the time to judge. Now, in the next chapter, in chapter five, Lord willing, we're going to see Paul's frustration with the church's unwillingness to pass judgment. Right, he's, he's frustrated that they're passing judgment on him inappropriately and wrongly, and he's even more frustrated that they're not passing judgment on someone in their midst who's uh, guilty of gross immorality. Judgment's also going to come up as a major theme in chapter 6 and chapter 11. But here Paul is concerned with the Corinthians judging him with what they think of his ministry. He says there in verse 3, he doesn't particularly care if they judge him. He says he doesn't even care if any human court judges him. He says it doesn't even really matter if I judge myself. Paul seems to have a category that all of those people or things can be wrong. The Corinthians could be wrong. Human courts can be wrong. Paul says I could even be wrong about myself. I'm not, verse 4, aware of anything against me. I, my conscience is clear, but I understand I could be wrong. He knows there that he's not thereby acquitted, though. Right, if you're on trial, it doesn't really matter if you think you're innocent. Right, what matters is what the judge decides. And so Paul says, it doesn't really matter what the court of public opinion says. I don't care about the Corinthians or any other human judge. It doesn't even matter if I think I'm guilty or not. He says there at the end of verse 4, it is the Lord who judges me. Paul's only concerned about whether God is pleased with him or not. My friends, like... I can't imagine an idea that could be much more at odds with the way we tend to think about life and the world now. We're being taught, like we're being discipled by the world around us to think exactly the opposite of what Paul's saying here. Everything in the world, everything in advertising, in the movies, books, magazines, the music that bombards us daily, it tells us that no one can judge you because you are the only one who can determine your own truth, right? The, the world's telling us every day that the only standard that you can be held to is the standard of your own desires, a standard of authenticity to yourself and your sense of identity, that the only bar you ever have to clear is the bar of your own potential and feelings. But generally, the idea is that you need to lighten up, learn to forgive and accept yourself rather than judge yourself harshly. But friends, into that sort of playground comes this bomb. Look at what God's word tells us here. There in verse 5, the Lord Jesus will return. And he says that will be a day of revelation. That things now hidden in the darkness, things that cannot be seen by other people, things like motivations, prejudices, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, deeds done in the dark. Verse 5 tells us all of that will be exposed and evaluated. And at that point, Paul says, each one will receive his commendation from the God who is holy and just and all-knowing. On that day, you will get what God thinks you deserve. Not what I think, not what you think, not what anyone else thinks. Specifically, it seems that Paul's talking here about his ministry as an apostle, his service to the church. Remember last week, we saw all the ways that we build the church will ultimately be, be tested by the fire of judgment. Right? It will be revealed, Paul said last week, whether or not we're building with the sort of God-ordained materials. He says, if not, we'll be saved, but we will suffer loss. Here, Paul is defending his own ministry methods which the Corinthians found so lacking in wisdom and sophistication and eloquence. He's decided to build the church with nothing but the message of the cross, the message of Jesus and him crucified. And he was confident that God would approve. So friend, the question for you and for me is whether or not we'll be found faithful on that final day. There in verse two, that's the standard. It's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or faithful. In one sense, it's very freeing. As we saw last week, God is the one who is responsible for the growth, for the fruit born in our lives through our work. And so all we're called to do in the end is to be trustworthy, to be faithful, to do God's work in God's ways. We don't have to worry about being creative, or brilliant, or even successful. So whether you are a pastor, a missionary, a deacon, a mother, an engineer, a child, an accountant, all you have to worry about is being faithful, being trustworthy with with what God's entrusted to you. Do what God's called you to do faithfully. Do it the way God has called you to do it. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter if you seem impressive or important to the world. God's the one who judges. It really doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter how you're judged. Your job is to be faithful to the Lord. Now, just to be clear, our hope is not in our own goodness and our own faithfulness on that last day of judgment. Paul here is, uh, is optimistic that judgment will result in our commendation from God, not our condemnation, right? Uh, Receiving sort of approval and appreciation from God. But just to be clear, we don't have any hope for that last day because of our inherent goodness and faithfulness. As Christians, we know that we would never be found good enough. We would never be found faithful on that final day if we were judged on our own merits. And friend, even if you're not a follower of Christ, I trust you have enough self-awareness to realize that that's true that on that day when all is revealed, when the the secrets of men's hearts are laid open, that that on that day you, you won't feel confident in your own goodness. We should all fear God's judgment in our lives because none of us have met God's holy and perfect standard. We haven't even met our much less holy and much less perfect standards. As a result, the day of judgment should be a day of terror for us. But in his great love, God sent the Lord Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience and to die on the cross to take away our punishment, to rise from the dead in victory over sin and death. And the Bible tells us that if anyone will turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, we are completely forgiven. There is now no condemnation for us as we look forward to that final day, not because we're so good, but because we're in Christ and he's so good. And so friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, are you ready for that last day? Are you ready for that day of judgment? In verse five, the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. Friend, what things have you hidden in darkness that that you will not want exposed to the light. He says there that it'll disclose the purposes of the heart. Friend, what things are in your heart that you will not enjoy seeing disclosed before a holy God? What, what's your plan for that day of judgment? Are you, are you simply hoping it doesn't come? Are you hoping that God is in fact a liar and that he won't keep his word and he won't in fact judge? Are you hoping that he'll grade on a scale? and that you'll fall somewhere on the right side of the bell curve. Friend, God has made a way for you to receive a commendation on that final day. And that's for you to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ and to begin to serve God faithfully now in light of that final day. If you have questions about what that means, if if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Christ We'd love to talk to you more about that. I'd encourage you to consider signing up for the Christianity Explored class that's about to begin. Talk to the friend who invited you this morning. Come talk to me after the service. Uh, You have no more important thing on your agenda today than making sure you're ready for that last day of judgment. Paul speaks to his own perspective. He's leaving things up to the Lord's evaluation. And he warns the Corinthians not to be impatient in passing judgment. There in verse 5, he says, don't pass judgment before the time. And the time he defines there is that day when Christ returns. The idea is that even as we'll see next week, there are some ways that we absolutely must, as a church, judge certain behaviors. There is a very real way that we should wait patiently and allow the Lord to have the final evaluation. You see, when we understand that there's a day of judgment coming, it makes us patient We can trust that there doesn't need to be complete and perfect justice here and now. Because God sees all and he knows all. No act of evil finally goes unaddressed. No act of faithfulness finally goes unrewarded. Nothing ultimately will slip through the cracks. And friends, I think that's so helpful for us as we live our lives. This inoculates us against pride in so many ways. Because it really doesn't matter if people think well of you or not. Right? If, if people praise you and they admire you and they think you're great, well, let's be honest, people are easy to impress. It's not that hard to fool people who don't actually know what you're like. And so God is not fooled. And so it's, it's much easier not to be puffed up, not to read your pl- press clippings, so to speak. I think it also inoculates us against despair. Because even if people condemn you, The Lord doesn't if you're in Christ. So the Corinthians need this adjustment in their understanding of the end times. They thought they were already in the time where they understood everything, where they could pass judgment, that the way things appeared now was the final standard, that Paul's apparent weakness and folly and frailty meant that he wasn't a worthy leader in the church. But Paul says, actually, the day of evaluation is off in the future, And that leads us to the second thing for us to see and that is uh, correcting our view of the end times ought to create Christ-like humility in us. There in verse 1 Paul writes this, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Remember in chapter 3 Paul's been talking about the different divisions in the church about some following Paul, others following Apollos, and so the us there seems to be Paul and Apollos, right? Apostles and leaders. Uh, he uses a word there uh, when he says that we're servants of Christ. He uses a word there that was used for the, the, the uh, slaves who would row a ship in the very bottom uh, of, the, of the ship's hold, the very lowest level. Right, again, it's this picture of being the lowest of the low. Paul just seems to keep pressing that image, right? He's the one at the very end of the the procession, being made a spectacle on display. I'm the scum of the earth. I'm like the refuse of all things. I'm the lowest slave in in a boat full of slaves. He says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. This would be shocking to the church for Paul to use this word to describe himself For them, their leaders were all sort of scrambling to accumulate glory and prestige for themselves. Paul says, oh, we apostles, uh, the the leaders of the church, the ones who have been anointed by God to found and build the church, we're just the lowest of the low. We're, we're We're the servant at the very bottom of the boat. He says, that's how you ought to regard us. He says, we're also stewards of the mysteries of God. Back in chapter two, or 2, verse 1, Paul calls the gospel of Christ a mystery, right? In the sense that it's something hidden, right? God's plan wasn't clear before the coming of Christ, but now it's something that's accessible to everyone through the preaching of the gospel. And so the apostles are stewards of this now revealed mystery. That word steward is, is used of servants in a household who were responsible for overseeing the entire operation. Right? When Paul says we're servants of Christ, it's a picture of being the lowest of the low. When he says we're stewards of the mystery of God, he's saying we have this incredible responsibility. And so if you will, Paul's telling the church that the apostles, the leaders, should be regarded this way. As humble slaves who've been entrusted with an incredible responsibility. Now in a sense, every Christian is a servant of Christ in this way. Every Christian is a steward of the gospel. But it seems that Paul's saying here that he has a special responsibility. He has a a unique accountability to God for these things. He's particularly called to be a servant and a steward. And friends, I think this is a helpful picture for us as we think about Christian leadership in in any form. The Lord Jesus was clear that leadership in his kingdom was cross-shaped was cruciform. Leadership meant being a servant. It meant losing your life. It meant sacrifice. How many times did Jesus tell his uncomprehending disciples that the way up is down? The way to glory is the path to suffering and humility. That it's the one who's last who'll be first in the end. Right? That That idea, that paradox only makes sense in light of Jesus, right? The the almighty son of God who, who stooped to become a man and to die on a cross so that he might be exalted and glorified. So from whatever leadership looks like in your life, if you're a Christian, maybe that's being an elder in the church, maybe that's being a husband in your marriage, maybe that's being a parent in your family, Maybe it's being an employer in your workplace or even holding some office in the government. Christian leadership means being lowly. It means being a servant. It doesn't mean exercising your own privileges. It doesn't mean being served. It doesn't mean being seen as great. It means being a servant of the joy of others. This is why it's so dangerous to have celebrity pastors This is why time and time again, we see that men who become elevated and celebrated wind up falling because not many people can handle fame and renown without being puffed up, without beginning to think that it's actually all about you. An apostle, Paul says, is the lowest slave. How much more so any other Christian leader? This This is one reason we don't use the honorific reverend around here to designate our pastors. This is why we don't have the pastors wear a special outfit up on stage, right? We actually want to work hard against the impression that somehow pastors are are different than the rest of the congregation. Yes, there's a a stewardship, there's a responsibility, there's a a different call, right? But we're all called to be faithful in the same way to whatever it is God's called us to do, right? Nothing could be further from the truth than to think that a pastor is somehow high and exalted above his congregation. Paul says, no, actually, that the apostles themselves were the very lowest of slaves. Even Apollos, a great Christian leader, the lowest of the servants. You see, Paul seems to think that the pattern of life that the apostles and the church leaders from the early church lived out, he seems to think that that's a pattern for all of us to follow because they're following the pattern of Christ. There in verse 6, he says, he applied all these things to himself and to Apollos. He says, these leaders that you're tempted to exalt and sort of divide behind, he says, let me apply these things to us. We're we're slaves. We're stewards of these mysteries. There in verses 14 to 17, he speaks to them as a father in the faith, encouraging them as his beloved children to follow his example. Paul seems to understand that this was not unique to the apostles, but this was the sort of pattern of life for all Christians. That as, as the apostles exhibited this great humility, this Christ-like humility that we ought to as well. He says, I'm telling you this so that you'll follow my example. He says, I even sent Timothy to you to sort of live out this way of life before you. And so you have this pattern that Paul and the other apostles, the other early church leaders, they modeled this sort of forward-looking Christ-like humility. Right? Paul was not living his life as if right now was the time to get everything. He wasn't satisfied he wasn't full. He wasn't characterized by the already. No, Paul and the other apostles were looking for riches and ease and approval and a kingdom. Not here and now, but off in the future. They were pushing all of their chips into the middle of the table and banking everything on God's final evaluation, God's final reward at the end of time. That was the way of life Timothy showed them when he came to them. Paul said that he's going to come again and visit them. We know that he did between the letter of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He made a kind of emergency, painful visit. And he says there in verses 19 to 21, he's going to come and he's confident that he'll be attended by a display of the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it'll be clear that the apparent weakness of his ministry uh, was, in fact, not weakness at all. That it would be undeniable that he really was an apostle of Christ that this would shut the mouths of those who were arrogant and boastful, that they'd be revealed to be all talk in the end. So he presses the matter firmly in their verses 6 to 7. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? These verses are, to say the least, dripping with sarcasm. The you there in verse 7 is singular. Paul uses a lot of plural yous in this letter, talking to the whole church. But here he's having an imaginary conversation, it seems, with a Corinthian. And he's asking, essentially, who do you think you are? He asks three rhetorical questions there. The first one puts them in their place. Who sees anything different in you? That is to say, what makes you superior? What's so different about you that anyone else ought to be impressed? That you'd boast so arrogantly? That you think you've already arrived? That you're already reigning in the spirit? The second question reminds them that any good gifts they've received have come from the Lord. He says, what do you have you did not receive right none of us exists by our own will our own power we are all created dependent beings and so if you have anything good in your life any spiritual gift any insight into the ways of God any unique intelligence or even physical qualities if you have greater skills or abilities or understandings Paul's asking here rhetorically what exactly did you do to make those things happen those things are gifts from God. The third question just points out the stupidity of boasting in things that you've been given. If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right, this is the point that Paul's been making to the Corinthians all along. You've received incredible spiritual blessings. Right, this church, they're speaking in tongues, they, they've got prophecies, they're full of spiritual knowledge. And that should have made them humble to receive gifts like that. But instead, they were puffed up, they were proud, right? In light of God's grace, in light of the fact that everything they have is an unmerited gift, boasting is the height of stupidity. Paul's saying, well, you haven't earned anything, so why are you boasting as if you deserve the credit? So brothers and sisters, ask yourself, how are you tempted to pride like the Corinthians? Spiritually speaking, the Corinthians felt like they had arrived. Do you look down on people who aren't as spiritually mature as you are? Do you look down on people who don't know the Bible as well as you do? Do you judge your brothers and sisters who lag behind you in insight and in self-control? Do you impose your view on secondary matters, on matters where Scripture doesn't speak directly, there in, in verse 6, he says that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that you might not be puffed up. Right? Do you allow yourself to be sort of curbed and restrained by the word of God? Or, or do you have so much insight that you can see not only the things God tells us in his words, but all the things he should have told us, right? All, all the sort of secondary and tertiary applications of God's word. Are you so insightful that everyone else needs to get in line behind you and, and see things the way you see them? Well friend, can you see how foolish it is to be proud of something that God has graciously given you? If you do have insight, if you do know God's word, if God's spirit has wrought in you self-control, can you see how you didn't do anything to make that happen? That that's not because you deserve those good gifts, but because God's incredibly gracious to you. Can you see how your pride in your spiritual maturity is actually the opposite of spiritual maturity? Just stop and think where you would be if God had not shown you mercy. Think about where you would be if you received from the Lord only what you actually deserve. If God held you accountable for every act of cruelty, every lustful, greedy, selfish, proud thought. And when you see all of the things in your life, all of these blessings, all of these strengths, all of these gifts, can you see how foolish it is that you would boast in them, that you would allow them to make you proud, that you would despise your brother or sister, that you'd start divisions and quarrels in the church over these things? Friends, are you proud of your accomplishments in life? Have you achieved a lot? Maybe you're successful in school. Maybe you've made a nice career for yourself. Whatever it is, whether it's spiritual blessings, material blessings, blessings in your work life, blessings in your family, it's all God's mercy and kindness. You deserve far less. You have nothing about which to boast. That's why Paul said back in chapter 1, if anyone boasts, let him boast in the Lord. It's the Lord who's done every good thing for us. People who have experienced God's grace, people who are aware of the coming of sort of end-time judgment, are humble people. There's no room for arrogance when we've been saved by the sacrificial and loving death of Christ. So, brothers and sisters, this is what Paul is holding out before the Corinthian church and before us this morning. A life lived, marked by a deep experience of God's grace now that we've received so many good gifts from him and that we're deeply humbled, but also a life looking off into the future, looking to the day when Christ will return and we'll be judged faithful. And at that time, everything will be made right. And everything that Corinthians thought was true then will actually finally be true and we will have all that we want. So Paul's holding out before us, a life of humility, living in God's gracious gifts now, and a life of patience looking forward to the day of judgment. Friends, that's why we come to the Lord's table yet again as a church family. When we come to the table, we are looking back to Christ's death for us, this source of all the grace, every spiritual gift that we've received, and we're humbled that our God would die for us. We come to the table And we have fellowship with the crucified and risen Jesus. And we find strength and grace to continue on in this life. And we come and we look forward to the day when Jesus will return. When the the waiting is over. When the not yet will be done away with. And we will reign with him. And so let's pray. And then we can celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Our Father, we delight in the grace and mercy that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus. You have not given us what our sins deserve, but you have instead blessed us and showered your kindness and mercy upon us in more ways than we even know. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to be patient, help us to live our lives not to please the eyes of other men, Help us to live our lives with uh, faithfulness. Help us to be trustworthy with all that you've entrusted to us. Uh, We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come back quickly. We long for your return. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.